0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia Pacific region. What does it mean to be a meritocracy? Ask an ordinary person, and they would likely say it means promoting the best and brightest in today's society based on merit. But that simple explanation many thorny questions. What even is merit? How do we measure talent? How does equality come into play? And how do we ensure that meritocracies don't degenerate into the same old privileged systems they strove to replace? Tarun Khanna and Michael Sanyi write in their edited volume, Making Meritocracy, Lessons from China and India, From Antiquity to the Present, write that few public policy issues generate as much analysis or rouse as much emotion as the question of how to make society more meritocratic. Tarun, Michael, and their fellow contributors try to define, study, and interrogate the idea of meritocracy with reference to two Asian countries in particular, India and China. Tarun Khanna is the Paul Leman Professor at Harvard Business School and the first director of Harvard's Lakshmi Batalan Family South Asia Institute. Michael Zanyi is Franku Professor of Chinese History and former director of the Fairback Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard University. Today, Tarun, Michael, and I talk about meritocracy, why they chose Asia as their focus, and why it's important to understand how this political idea is method in practice. So, Tarun, Michael, thank you for the both of you coming on the show today. Um, you know, perhaps let's just start with with the reason behind uh, this volume in the first place. You know, why study the idea of meritocracy in the first place?
2: So, Nicholas, um, uh, thank you for having us uh, on the podcast. Uh, you know, as we say in our introduction, this the idea of meritocracy animates virtually every society uh, that I know about. Uh, in most of the developing world that is my normal haunt, uh, it's usually expressed as angst about how the elite are capturing those particular societies. In the two countries with which we are most directly concerned uh, in this volume, uh, it has been an ongoing discussion item for certainly for decades, and uh, as our volume makes clear, as the chapters in our volume make clear for centuries in many instances. Um, so we see it as a pretty fundamental organizing principle for societies, and we don't start with taking, uh, making a value judgment about whether it's per se uh, good or not so good. Uh, and we let the, uh, our colleagues who have contributed various chapters or speak to that issue uh, but the central answer is that it's just perhaps the animating principle of how one thinks about the organization of society.
0: So I don't want to uh, start off right off the bat by disagreeing with my dear co-editor, um, but I think there there is actually an implicit uh, judgment on meritocracy um, in the sense that um, there are practical issues around. Uh, whether meritocracy is a desirable way of organizing society, um, how to go about doing it, and so on uh, so there's an instrumental side to this, but I think there is underlying the question also a moral a moral dimension in the sense that um, a a society in which um, all people have the pot- the, the, the opportunity, to fulfill their potential is, I think we would all agree, uh, uh, a good society in contrast to a society where people don't have that opportunity, where people are constrained by the circumstances of their birth, uh, where their opportunities are limited. So uh, I guess it's, it's it's perhaps, I would say that, that while meritocracy is is not the only way to create a good society. There are possibly other ways to create a good society. There is a kind of moral dimension here um, that, that uh, meritocracy is widely seen as um, w- one way to organize a good society and therefore perfecting meritocracy, improving meritocracy, thinking about meritocracy and how it should be accomplished is not simply an intellectual question, not simply a historical or a social science question, but actually also a moral
2: question as well. So I I agree with the moral dimension for sure. Uh, But I guess my uh, uh, orientation coming into the project, uh, Michael and Nicholas, was that it's possible that we see um, that it is so subject to abuse that one should revisit whether at a practical level it is doable or not. Uh, and in fact, we do have a point of view at the end of the book on that issue, which we'll get yeah. to, I'm sure. Mm.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't. You know, I, wouldn't dis- I wouldn't disagree with you. The, 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 uh, it's actually been an interesting process. Uh, I would not have thought of meritocracy as a moral question before we started, but as we reached the end of the project, I find that conclusion inescapable. Mm. And of course, in the way of such edited volumes, we would we would. I mean, we might well have had a moral philosopher weigh in had we known at the end of the project what we. Had we known at the beginning of the project what we, what we know at the end, and in fact, um, there's a whole other book that's formulating, I think, in both our minds of a very different book, uh, which would include all of our wonderful contributors, but then a whole bunch of other contributors uh, on topics that didn't occur to us until after the book was compiled as a process, I might add, as a result, I might add, of a process that was many, many years in, in, the, in the making. And I think one of the things that helps the volumes stick together in ways that edit, many edited volumes do not is that we really, the book is really the product of a conversation that has been going on for six or seven years uh, with different voices coming in, popping out, but a kind of core group of engaged participants. Um, the book reflects, who who was in that conversation, but other conversations are equally possible.
1: So, I mean, one of my questions is, you know, why, why focus on Asia? And I know this might be instrumental in terms of who was in the room, who was part of these conversations, but then kind of why why are Asian examples front and center in this volume? And I ask because, you know, in Western countries, and especially in the U.S., there's lots of debate about meritocracy, um, how to best achieve meritocracy. A lot, there are a lot of conniptions about meritocracy in the West. Um, so so, so, why then are Asian examples going to front and center in this edited volume?
0: True. Maybe I'll I'll, I'll, I'll start on, on this one. The, the, I think the simple, the simple answer... Um, is that the the conniptions as you call them about about meritocracy in the united states uh suggest that this is a central uh uh, question shaping the future of the polity the future of the country Um, and these conversations seem to take place in an echo chamber as if no one in any other society ever in history anywhere else in the world has ever thought about these issues and so a central reason to answer your question a central reason for putting china and india front and center is simply to make the point that if we are having this uh all-consuming and and consequential debate does it not simply make sense to look at comparisons with other places that have gone through these debates, that are going through these debates, where, uh, uh, where other approaches have been tried, where other uh, uh, intellectual traditions have been implemented. Uh, so the first point is simply, and I think this is probably for American readers, the one point we really want to, to hit very, very hard is that um, uh, there is value in exploring the experience of others. A second reason why it's front and center is to come back uh, to, to my moral argument. Um, India and China are large countries. Uh, so hundreds of millions of people uh, who are growing up in those societies and billions of people who have grown up in those societies have um, their, their opportunities and their capacities to fulfill their potential have been shaped by the constraints within that society, the impact of hereditary uh, um, uh, um, uh, inertia, and also by attempts to undo those effects. So it's both a useful case study for the American debate, but also uh, enormously important in its own own context, uh, in its own right, And perhaps, this is perhaps the most ambitious uh, uh, part of the the story, perhaps um, all three societies have something to learn from one another, and other societies as well. So there is an instrumental dimension. We are, after all, um, scholars of South Asia and of China, but that's actually secondary.
1: So maybe I'd like to kind of turn to, turn to turn for my for my next question um so there are two big uh there are two big um case studies i guess uh in this book china india um you know maybe i'll I'll ask you kind of the question about uh the things about meritocracy in india um the chapters about india in this in this book are seem to be primarily focused on things like um on things like caste on things like affirmative action um you know what is it about about i guess about these questions that is influencing the conversation about meritocracy in india
2: oh nicholas i think that uh in india uh the meritocracy debate uh has sensibly very much focused around what to do about this age-old system of caste uh, caste is just something that impedes the uh, speaking as an applied economist for a second, impedes the functioning of labor markets and uh, prevents talent from finding a way to the tasks to which it is most suited. Uh, and in that sense, not only causes the economy and society to depart from uh, its possibilities frontier, if I could use that, that, that phrase for a second, Uh, but also is morally dubious uh, along the lines that Michael was talking about uh, earlier. The caste is a central issue and the Indian state in its modern form post-1947 has uh, extensively uh, tried to engineer a system of meritocracy, uh, which is an issue that we uh, cover at great length. The various chapters in our edited book cover at great length uh, with mixed results. And prior to 1947, prior to the, the modern nation state, um, caste was, uh, if I could caricature more of a more of a given and dramatically stratified uh, society. So it is the it is the elephant in the room. However, I would also say that there, there is there is a chapter at the back end uh, by an applied mathematician and engineer uh, who basically points to. What I think is a huge issue, particularly for scholars and policymakers, if you look at most of the meritocracy debate, uh, as you'll see even reflected in the chapters, in China they center around the examination system, in India, they center around caste. Uh, in the US, it's mostly been uh, a question of uh, higher education and uh, admissions to elite colleges and angst about those and so on. Those are all central and legitimate issues. Uh, but one of our uh, chapter contributors points out that the vast majority of people in, in the world, and certainly in India, uh, and possibly in China, are not part of the elite system. And there is an issue of allocation of talent uh, and the moral issue of giving people uh, full control over their opportunity sets in life uh, that pervades the entire skills spectrum in a society. So even if you are a gig economy worker, Um, um, somebody who's barely been through high school, there's still an issue of what what are your innate abilities and what are the abilities that you've acquired as a result of whatever system of education formal or otherwise you might have been through and how should we think about meritocracy there? And what's really fascinating about that chapter, to me one of the most interesting chapters um, uh, in the book, is that uh, he really um, points, you know, turns the light to this vast swath of society that is entirely unaddressed by the meritocracy debate. Um, So I do think it's centrally about caste in India, but there is a huge, huge other economy where caste matters, but so do a bunch of other things.
1: You know, there's an interesting point there, Turun, that I wanted to kind of just drill a bit deeper into. Um, I think I can totally see how our discussions of meritocracy are so focused on examinations, on formal education, on higher education, that we miss the importance of meritocracy for uh, everyone outside of that. Um, and I think that's that's an important conversation. For India, it's an important conversation. I think for much of the developed world and the way we talk about education as well. Um, I wonder if I could ask you just kind of, kind of to to drill a bit deeper into kind of what you think meritocracy means for those who aren't in, uh, higher education, who don't, who aren't in part of it, are not part of that, who aren't part of that formal education system.
2: Um, sure, Nicholas, um, so first, I think at an abstract level, it means the same thing, um, as it does for people who are, um, uh, found their way into the elite strata of society in the sense that every human being. I'm sure, aspires to a fuller life, um, material opportunities, um, uh, fulfillment in whatever it is that they do in society. So at that level, I, I certainly don't think there's any difference. Uh, I think the there is an engineering difference, if you will, which has to do with how one makes meritocracy happen in practice. And with that chapter that I was referring to, by it, it's by a, a colleague named varanagarwal who's an MIT graduate and an entrepreneur in India and an applied math person. Um, What it makes clear is that uh, we have uh, given short shrift as a society to realizing that the technologies exist now uh, to begin to put in place a system of meritocracy uh, for for want of a better way of describing it, for blue-collar workers. And it's incumbent upon us to at least try. Um, It's not easy, but uh, neither is meritocracy for the elites. Uh, So what I found interesting about that chapter is... uh, and an and attribute of uh, this book that Michael and I have co-edited is the juxtaposition of very different um, intellectual stabs, if you will, at um, a gargantuan topic. You know, you've know, you got the philosophers, you've got the legal scholars, you've got the historians and the economists, uh, and now you've got the uh, applied math uh, people also speaking to this issue. And as Michael said, you know, what's indicative of, a, of an intellectually generative process is that at the end of the book, uh, you know, there, there are many others that we would have included um, had we had the foresight and wisdom uh, exante uh, to do so. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs
0: shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it to get 30, 30, to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? Sold! Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash
2: switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: So let's flip over now to China, and I want to kind of ask you this question, Michael. You know, China... Um, has this very long history, or says it has this very long history of meritocracy, of of the civil examinations, um, the imperial examinations to so join the imperial civil service, uh, which has now kind of become uh the Gaokao, which is our modern equivalent. Um, I guess how there's this idea that kind of meritocracy is very central to Chinese history and the Chinese conception. Um, of itself as a society. Uh, it's certainly something that I know European thinkers like, you know, like Voltaire were very into the idea of China as a meritocracy. Um, I wonder if you might kind of talk a bit more about, about how you see meritocracy fitting into uh I guess China and its conception of itself as this kind of long civilization.
0: Sure. Well um <clears throat> let me take that question from um uh, from three perspectives, uh, 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 a historical, a contemporary and a, um, what we might call a, um, an instrumental. Um, so it's, it's, it's true that, um, uh, and actually I'll combine the, the, I'll intertwine the two as we go, the three, as we go along. So it's true that China has, um, an enormously long history, of um, using uh, competitive examinations as a way to determine who should uh, advance in society. Um, As our contributor, Zach Howlett, puts it very nicely, um, in, in that sense, there is a real continuity in the examination system, not as people might expect in terms of producing merit, uh, producing a meritocratic outcome, but in the sense that um, for uh, centuries for elite Chinese men and now also for uh, uh, non-elite men and for women, um, the standard, the, the centralized examination has been what Zach calls a fateful rite of passage. And it's a wonderful idea because it captures the idea that the examination is both consequential, it, it, uh, it, um, it determines in many ways or certainly shapes one's possibilities in life. So it's consequential, but it's also a product of, of chance at a certain level. You cannot predict the outcome. Uh, no matter how hard you study and how smart you are or you think you are, uh, the exam may not bring you out on, on top. And so however much the examination system has has changed from its imperial predecessors to uh, its refinement over the centuries to its modern incarnation as the Gaokao, um, this has been a, cons- a constant theme, both as an animating myth in society, that society is merit- meritocratic, at least for for men in the, in, in the former iterations, um, so it's both it's both an animating myth and a principle by which society is structured um the The second thing that I think makes it really interesting for us to look at is that um the it turns out so Voltaire, like many europeans uh talked a lot about China really for his own purposes without knowing a lot about China. And when he talked about the exam system, it was really as a tool to criticize uh, his own society rather than uh, to dive deep into what was going on in China. But it turns out if we look closely, and this is something that comes out in several of the chapters, it turns out that if we if we uh, look closely at the system, we see some universal features of attempts to produce meritocracy. And in the interest of time, I'll just mention one. So at various times in the imperial examinations, one of the subjects of testing was poetry. And now we might think, and we, you know, lots of people have said, oh, this just, this just shows, you know, how ridiculous the system was. How should we define, how would, how would the ability to compose poetry tell you whether someone should be a good official or not? Well, two comments in response. the, you know most people don't use calculus in their jobs today but actually calculus is tested on the SAT uh, and so in some ways the, the the question is you could you could turn the question around and and say well, just as they had faulty measures, so we too have faulty measures and figuring out what are good and bad measures is a universal question but the more interesting reading of the question of the of the poetry exams is that is to actually look into the debates as Michael Pewett and other scholars have done to look into what people were saying about using poetry as a as a testing mechanism and it wasn't in their minds it wasn't foolish at all The thing about poetry is it it's a very very um, uh, it's very, very hard to cheat on uh, uh, poetry co- poetry composition tests. Either you're good at composing poetry or you're not good at composing poetry. Either you're honest in your poetry or you're uh, 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 not honest in your poetry. And so the debates about poetry in the civil service exams are actually debates about issues in standardized test, standardized testing. They're in a sense... Uncon- our debates about the SAT and standardized testing are actually unconscious echoes of debates that have been going on for uh, centuries. Now, the third reason why I think China is important in this story is the point that's brought out by by our colleague Bill Kirby in his chapter. Um the the uh, the largest educational system, the largest system of higher education in the world right now is in China. The, the uh, you know, as with so many things, the the China numbers are just really really big numbers. Um, if China is able to um, uh, implement a a um, an effective system of selection, I will. Uh, stay neutral for the moment on whether the Gaokao is that system. That will have enormous consequences for what will soon be the world's largest economy. Will have enormous consequences for um, scientific and technical research going forward. We are already seeing, of course, a shift in even basic level research, not just applied research, to China and to Asia more broadly. Uh, and so this the the system by which China selects its university, its top university students is actually consequential, not just for China and not just for students in China, but for all of us.
2: Uh, Nicholas, if I may uh, just pick up on um, Michael's excellent uh, response. Um, This issue of poetry not being easy to game um, in an evaluation process is actually so fundamental at so many levels, because a lot of the angst about meritocracy is that certain classes of people who um, perhaps they have innate abilities, maybe they don't, but they certainly have advantages by virtue of being uh, descended from existing elites and they use their advantages to de facto game the system, not necessarily doing anything illegal. Um, In some countries they might do something illegal. Uh, but not necessarily doing something illegal, just having access to more resources. And we can see that even in our uh, surroundings in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, um, You know, if you're lucky enough to go as a high school student to a good school, uh, you have uh, moderately or very affluent uh, parents, uh, the amount of attention that is lavished upon the child to get them ready for college. um, It's not hard to see why... People of more modest means would see that as unfair somehow, in determining uh, true potential uh, of the human being, uh, so to speak. So you know, it seems to me that when you when you take an engineering perspective to how do you create a meritocratic system, which is an idea that sort of animates me uh, uh, from, from for quite has animated me for quite some time, um, uh, the idea of finding things that are trickier to game. And you can, you know, if you if we think creatively, this is not part of the book, we think creatively, there are probably other things that we could come up with. You know, companies routinely put people in teamwork situations um, to ascertain different attributes of the person that might affect um, their ability to perform uh, in a collaborative creative enterprise. Uh, and that's something that, you know, the SAT or the Gaokao certainly is not going to measure or the tests in India for the Indian Institute of Technology or what have you. Uh, So I think if one of the admonitions I hope that comes to us as a result of this volume and hopefully others that uh, people pick up on uh, is that we need to think a little bit more creatively than being stuck um, in the important but uh, old debates about, you know, whether uh, whether exams are good or reservations in India are good or bad, or affirmative action is good or bad. Uh, those are important, but those are not the only debates.
1: You know, I think it, the things you've talked about kind of uh, it come through in several of the chapters, um, this question of, of or this, this point you raise about kind of meritocracy, um the people who benefit from meritocracy then invest more time and effort into their children which then kind of leads to the creation of kind of it it, it complicates the conversation about meritocracy uh that came through that comes through the chapter i think um definitely on the chapter on singapore um which uh which unfortunately don't have um enough time to get into today uh but 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 there does seem to be this kind of complications when it comes to to meritocracy you know it's it seems very difficult to build um it definitely seems like it's it's always runs the risk of getting subverted by uh either existing elites or the elites that meritocracy itself creates um and there are examples of this in the chapters in the chapters in china in the chapters on india in the chapter on singapore um you know, and so to perhaps to to pose a bold question. I know this is something that that you talk about uh, in your book. You've we've mentioned it already in this interview, um, but I guess is meritocracy? You know, and a, there are big air quotes around meritocracy. Is meritocracy something um, we should or can strive for at all in our in our societies? Maybe I'll first? pose that question to uh, Tarun first. Um, okay. um So first, I would say.
2: That the process that we've observed uh, uh, in the course of editing this volume, and it seems to apply pretty robustly, dare I say even universally, uh, across time in different centuries in India, all the way contemporary time, and also applies to um, um, uh, ancient and modern China and to contemporary United States, is this idea that, Uh, to caricature a bit that meritocracy contains the seeds of its own demise, Uh, by which I mean that uh, imagine that we were starting uh, tabula rasa, no preconditions, we all competed, some of us are designated meritorious. Well, the first thing that those of us who um, were elevated to that state, if you will, would do is uh, add that's the empirical reality. We would rig the system for our progeny. Um, and in that sense, uh, just the act of uh, engaging in this is sufficient to um, to ensure that in the subsequent period, it won't exist in its pure form. Uh, and you see that, re- that simple process repeated over and over again. And of course, what societies have done is try to uh, re-level the playing field, in effect. Um, I often think of this, though, I've been admonished for using this as not quite the literally correct analogy, but I think of Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill and you try to make a meritocratic system and you get the boulder up the hill and then some elite rigs it and the boulder kind of flattens you on its way down again. Um, But you see societies continually um, re-pushing the boulder up the hill to get it fairer, more efficient, uh, more morally justifiable and what have you. And they do this by Uh, what we refer to in the book as compensatory discrimination. Uh, In other words, saying that thus and so deserves an extra hand uh, because either of past uh, depredations on their um, uh, ancestors or their circumstances um, or, or, or because for whatever reason they didn't have access to the same, you know, things like coaching services or supplementary services to put them on a level playing field. And then that process just keeps repeating itself. So that's all to say that the, that, the, that the making of the meritocracy, hence the title of the book, um, is itself a fascinating issue. Um, on the issue of whether we should strive for it now, now that we've established that it's actually a very tricky thing. Um, and there have been some celebrated uh, volumes, um, one of them notably by our esteemed uh, colleague, uh, Michael Sandel, Um, suggesting that maybe it's really not worth it because uh, it's not clear that it's um, possible to do it fairly. And anyway, people pursuing meritocracy, whether they are they succeed in the material sense or don't succeed, uh, all end up uh, fairly unhappy uh, with the process. Why? Why kind of bother? Um, Well, Michael and I ended up uh, saying that we absolutely should bother, Uh, A, because um, uh, no counterfactual is uh, provided by uh, any of the uh, uh, people who are discontented with meritocracy, Uh, and it behooves us if we want to make pronouncements on how to set up societies, uh, be presumptuous enough to do that, then it behooves us if we're tearing down an edifice to provide uh, at least the contours of an (laughs) alternative one, but we don't see that. And societies have, I think there's something to the empiricism, which is societies have encountered these difficulties time and time again, and have continued to go back to, to try to make it again. This is a really important issue, so I'll, I'll hand off to Michael here.
0: Sure, well, I, I mean, I, I agree with, with everything Tarun said, and indeed, I think one of the, to me, surprising um, outcomes of all of this comparative work across time and, and, and space is is that uh, the 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 challenge that a goal or a principle that is intended to undermine privilege wherever it has been implemented whenever it has been put into practice has resulted in the actual entrenchment of existing privilege is i think the central paradox of meritocracy and probably i think our biggest if if we had to have a single intellectual uh, contribution, I think that's that's probably it. Um, having said that, I think uh, as as Trud says, in the absence of um, any alternatives, it does um, it does sort of behoove us to think about how to make meritocracy or the making of meritocracy better. Um, I'll just mention very quickly um, three elements of that. Um, the first is that um, to be conscious of this problem of elite capture, um, described most directly by Ajanta Subramanian in her volume on the IITs, where she makes the argument that that uh, um, a rhetoric of merit uh, in the Indian IIT system is actually used as a way to conceal um, entrenched privilege. Recognizing that problem is surely part of the uh, process of addressing it, if not solving it. A second broad uh, uh, conclusion or a, a broad finding would be that um, that meritocracy has to be... Um, that the, 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 the definition of meritocracy has to be dynamic. Uh, and so debates about what should be the end state of a meritocratic system are never going to be productive because what constitutes meritocracy uh, is what 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 society deems as meritocratic shifts, but also uh, what what, uh, um, uh, what what will what will enable uh, elites to game the system is the capacity to specify meritocracy, and then the third point. Which I think again is—I think this is really, for me at least, one of the powerful conclusions to the volume—is that it's hopeless to pretend that long-term aspirations to meritocracy are not, in the short term, anti-meritocratic. And recognizing that, in in the sense that some people's opportunities uh, will not be fulfilled in the hope of a long-term bettering of uh, everyone's opportunities, that has to be recognized as part of the debate. Finally, just to just to close, um, I'm reminded whenever this issue of whether we should just abandon meritocracy comes up, I'm reminded, of course, of Churchill's comment about democracy. Um, No one would argue that American democracy is um, is uh, in a perfect state. Uh, It's a deeply troubled system, deeply challenged system. Um, What do we do? Abandon it? or better it meritocracy is the same
1: thank you for listening to our interview with her kana and michael Sonyi about their edited volume making meritocracy lessons from china and india from antiquity to the present um michael you get to actually have kind of the last word in this interview uh you know where can people find your work and uh, what might the next project be
0: well the the uh, the meritocracy volume uh should be available uh through online sellers um The uh, we hope that people will read it and think about it and use it in their teaching and so on. Um, My next project is uh, uh, an even bigger project than this one. I am writing a history of modern China from the perspective of rural communities. So it's a a village history of modern China. Uh, I am having, of course, some challenges proceeding with the research given the pandemic. But finding some workarounds and, and looking forward to uh, throwing myself wholeheartedly into that project, which I'm really excited about, and I think is a, a really significant and uh, or potentially significant uh, and very different way of looking at the modern history of the world's most populous country.
1: Well, as, as someone who recently uh, got to go to mainland China and was there and was there recently i i I sympathize with the difficulties of 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 going to china to do um to do research uh you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. And you can find many more interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Uh, we're on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia next week, Join us for an interview with Angela Huey on Takeaway Stories from a Childhood Behind the Counter. But before then, thank you so much, Michael, and thank you to Tarun uh, for joining us today. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure.